ask you to turn to Ephesians chapter 4, and I'm going to begin reading in verse 17. Please give your attention to God's word. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every, we, every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Like many of you, I'm sure I have enjoyed the first two seasons of that spinoff from the Star Wars world called The Mandalorian. If you haven't seen it, the main character is a bounty hunter who uh, travels around the outskirts, the outer reaches of the galaxy, and uh, he has come into the protective care of an alien, a small baby alien that looks a lot like Yoda, uh, that, uh, if you know who that is, that uh, is strong with the Force. And so it's really a well-done show. I've enjoyed it. What's been interesting to me is that the main character, the hero of the whole show, the Mandalorian, is actually someone who lives by a code called the Mandalorian Code. He lives by a, a way of life, a pattern of behavior, a commitment to a lifestyle that has been handed down to him from his forefathers. If you've ever seen the show, you know that when a Mandalorian greets another Mandalorian, or when they interact, you'll often hear them say, this is the way. This is the way. And the way is something that has been given to them, something that's outside of them. And I'd say that that's kind of oddly refreshing, even though the way is, which all I know is that they don't show their face. Other than that, I don't know what else is in the way. But it's something that they don't come up with themselves. He, he's, this hero is not living by his own code of ethics. He's not making up his own lifestyle. He's living according to the way that he has been told to live by an authority, by somebody outside of himself. That's very unusual in this culture. In this culture, we are told repeatedly to look within ourselves to know the way to live. Look within ourselves for inner light. Look within ourselves for our sense of identity, who we are, why we're here, what we're doing, what our goals are, what our, our purpose is, to look within ourselves. This idea of a way being given to us is a foreign concept. It's interesting, in Acts chapter 9, it tells the beginning of the story of the Apostle Paul, how he was transformed by an encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ from being one of the great persecutors of the church to being one of the great leaders of the church. And it's interesting, in the beginning, in the time when he still called Saul, before he met the Christ on the road to Damascus, there's a reference to the church where the church is called the way. The church is called the way. I'll read that, verse, uh, that part of the verse for you. He, he, it says he has to ask permission from the leaders 
so that it says, if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. As far as we know, that's the only time, in, at least we know in Scripture, it's the only time the church is called the way. And we don't know why it was called the way. We don't know who called it the way. We don't know if the Christians themselves called it the way or if that was Paul's name for it, or probably not. But the point is, they called the church the way that lived by a code, lived by a morality, lived by a philosophy that was given to them. Jesus said, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. And so the way for the church was defined by the one who called himself the way. And really to be part of the way is to follow in the way that the Lord Jesus Christ leads. Jesus taught that that way is narrow, that the way that this world offers is broad, it's tolerant, it's multifaceted, many philosophies, many religions, many truths. You can make up your own truth. But the way of Christ, the way of the church is narrow, he said. Here in Ephesians chapter 4, Paul describes the ways of the world. That's the first part of the passage that we read. He's describing the way the world calls upon us to live. And then he says, that is not the way. Verse 20, that is not the way. It's not the way you learned Christ. And then he goes on to describe the lifestyle, as he does in all of his writings in the New Testament. The lifestyle of the believer is a lifestyle of repentance. Every day, every moment, every choice, every action you take is to be an act of repentance. He describes it in verses, beginning in verse 22. He says, you were taught in him, in Christ... As the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. He refers there as to two identities that we have had. We have, if you're a believer, if you're a true believer in Christ, you have had two identities that you live by. One he calls the old self, the old self which lives according to the way of this world, and then the new self that lives according to the way laid out for us by Jesus Christ. And every day for the believer, it's all about choosing to depart from the way of the world that your old self was bound to, and to live on the new way, on the narrow way that Jesus Christ is calling us to. That's repentance. Repentance is literally a turning of yourself from going one way to going the other way. All true believers are, were born into this world with the old identity, the old self. But there is a very real sense in which that old self died with Christ on the cross. That's what Paul refers to in Galatians 5, verse 24, when he says, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. He elaborates on this idea in Romans 6, where he says that we died with Christ and then were raised with him, new creatures in Christ, in his resurrection, and were given that new life. But there's a very real sense in which, even though in a, in a legal sense, before the, the throne of God, in, in, in terms of God's judgment, 
we died with Christ on the cross. We're raised with him in his resurrection from the tomb. But there's another sense that once we become a Christian, once we commit ourselves to following Christ, the rest of our lives is all about living that out day by day of killing the old man and embracing this new identity of who we are in Christ. It's that lifestyle of repentance. There's a lot of talk these days about identity. Everybody seems to be self-absorbed with, what's my identity? They have their Facebook identity, their Instagram identity, their, their gender identity, their political identity, their racial identity. We have all, these, all this talk going on about identity, but again, who gets to define our identity? According to the world, we get to define it. I get to define, de divine, defend, and, de and, and to decide who I am. I make it up. It's all made up. It's all about my goals, my purposes, my desires. But according to Scripture, God defines our identity in one of those two ways. Either we are of the old self or we are of the new self. And he defines those identities. How do we live according to our new identity in Christ and stop living according to our old identity? That's what the life, we're talking about sanctification. That's the word we use in, in the church about this process of being transformed from being identifying with this old self to being identified with the new self. This process, this transformation how do we live according to our new identity in Christ and forsake the old identity that we had in the world? Well, first, what Paul teaches us is it begins with your mind. There must be a change in your mind. Repentance requires developing a new mind, a new way of thinking. Look at verse 18. Paul says that this old self, what we were before we knew Christ, this old self has a darkened mind, a darkened mind. Dark in the sense of the scripture's definition of dark, which is evil, without God, without light, without truth. It's dark in two senses as Paul defines it here. First of all, he says, the old self is darkened in its mind in the sense that it's alienated from, God, from the life of God, he said. It's alienated from the life of God. That means it's opposed to the light and truth that comes from God. It is hostile to God's ways, hostile to God's thinking. Paul's language in Romans 1 is that in our old nature, in our old self, we suppress the truth in our unrighteousness. We are unteachable in our natural state. The second way in which our mind is darkened, Paul says, is that we were ignorant Ignorant. Ignorant in the sense that we could not perceive, we were not able, we did not have the ability to understand spiritual truths. We could not recognize who Christ was. We could not believe the gospel because we did not embrace the gospel. Our minds were darkened. It's not stupidity. Ignorance, when the Bible uses ignorance in this sense, it's not stupidity because some very brilliant people still have very darkened minds that are alienated and ignorant to the truth that is revealed through scripture. We live in a university community. There are hundreds upon hundreds of people that live in our community that are much smarter than I am. But so many of them are ignorant, darkened, alienated in their minds. I don't know if it's helpful or not, but an analogy that, that I 
tend to think of as a, as, as a computer. You look at a computer, you've got the hardware, which would correspond to maybe the brain. There's nothing wrong with the hardware. The brain works. God designed the brain. It works. But our philosophy, our code of ethics, our morality, all of this is like the software. And it is corrupted. Sin has twisted and corrupted so that our philosophy, our code of ethics, our morality, all these things are conformed to the ways of the world and are hostile to the ways of the Lord. That's the old self. That's what all of us were when we were enemies of Christ, enemies of the gospel, before we were saved. Putting on the new self, then, requires reprogramming, purging the bad software, downloading the good software, the good philosophy, the good biblical worldview, the good biblical morality, the good biblical purpose, the kingdom purpose for your life, the calling upon your life, to think Christ's thoughts after him. That's a very important part, and in some ways a foundational part of what repentance is about, is reprogramming your thinking so that you think Christ's thoughts after him. Paul says in verse 20, we learned Christ. He goes on to say, we heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. Yes, we must come to know Jesus Christ personally, to have a relationship with Jesus Christ. But how do you start any relationship in your life? If you're married, how did you start your relationship with your wife or your husband? If you have a relationship with a father or, as, with a father or mother or with a child, how does that relationship start? The relationship starts through knowing about the person, understanding the person, understanding how they think, how their emotions work, what is important to them, what they love, what they hate. As you learn about a person and you experience life with that person, the relationship grows and you begin to bond emotionally and even spiritually. The same thing is true of Christ. You must learn about him. You, so many people claim to be followers of Christ, but when you ask them what they believe about who Christ is, they believe a different Christ, a Christ that's, that's foreign to the scriptures. The only way to know Christ is to know his word because this is how he reveals himself to us. And that's how repentance begins. And so my first question is, are you still progressing in your education about who Jesus is? We have this way of life in the world where you go to elementary school and then secondary and middle school and high school and college, maybe get a graduate degree, maybe get a doctorate, but then your education is done and you go on and live your life based on that education. It's not that way as for a disciple. You must be continually learning until the day you die. You are a lifelong student in the school of Christ. Don't get to the point where you think, well, I've learned what I need to learn. I can just live off of this the rest of my life now. A disciple, a follower of Christ, is a student of Christ. And I guarantee you, you have not even begun to plumb the depths of who Christ is and what he has done for you and for the world. The second step in repentance, according to Paul, requires a softened heart. A dramatic change of your heart. Now again, you have to stop and define what the Bible's concept of the heart is. The Bible talks about the heart a lot. The heart includes the mind, but it's more than the mind, according to Scripture. It's also your will. It's also your emotions. It's your desires. It's your attitudes, your disposition. 
That's your heart. Really, the core of who you are is a, the, the, at the very core of your soul. That is the heart that the Bible addresses. And what Paul teaches us here in verse 19 is that because of our sin in our old self, that heart becomes calloused. You know, like the callous that builds up on your hands when you work hard to the point where if it gets so callous, you don't even feel anything with that part of your skin. A calloused heart is not sensitive to pain any longer. What pain are we talking about? We're talking about the pain of guilt, the pain of shame. It hurts to feel guilty, doesn't it? When you feel guilt, when you feel shame, it hurts. But a calloused heart has lost the ability to feel the pain of shame and guilt. That's the danger of being overly exposed to sin. And I tell you, because of the, the technology and the media that we have these days, this generation of people is more exposed to sin than any other generation that's ever lived on this planet. I'm certain of it. Every day we're surrounded by it. It comes into our homes, through our computers, through our phones, through our televisions. We're just immersed in a culture that is dedicated to the ways of the old self. And the problem with that is that the more you're exposed to it, you run the danger of becoming calloused to it, of developing what the Bible calls a hardened heart. One of our sons lived in Millersville for a few years. And we, when we would go to visit him, if we went at a certain time of year after they fertilized the fields, it really stinks there. <laughs> I mean, it, it just smells really bad. To the point where I almost gag at times how strong that stink was. And so I'd say to my son or say to the people who lived there, I'd say, how do you live with this every day when it's like this? And they say, oh, you get used to it. We live in a cesspool, morally speaking. And that's the problem is that your heart will get calloused and you don't notice the stink anymore. And so you need to be actively embracing this identity of the new self, seeking God to take away the calluses from your heart, because we all have it to one degree or another. Take away those calluses from your heart and give you this soft heart. God created all human beings in his image with a protective feature, which we call the conscience. The conscience is given to all people who are made in God's image as a means of restraining our wickedness. We are born totally depraved. We are born alienated from God, hostile to God, going away from God, cursing God. That was our nature, rejecting God. And so God put in place certain things. Civil government is one of them. But another one is a conscience to restrain how wicked we would be if he had just left us to our own devices. But that conscience can certainly get hardened. That's part of the heart. The conscience is part of the heart that the Bible talks about. And interestingly, in 1 Timothy chapter 4, Paul describes false teachers in the church, and he, he, he says this about them. That he says, their consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. You know, think about that. What happens to your skin if you get seared with a hot iron? You may never feel anything with that part of your skin again. That's what can happen to the conscience that God gave you to restrain your wickedness. You can't be saved by your conscience, but your conscience will keep you from being as evil as you would be otherwise. And what a terrible thing when your heart gets calloused and your conscience gets seared so that you don't feel the shame of the guilt of your sin. 
Physical pain is a warning. And spiritual pain, emotional pain from guilt and shame is a warning to step away. One of the many reasons that I have failed several times to learn to play the guitar is that I couldn't get past the pain of pushing those steel strings down on the fretboard. It hurts, like all get out. And after a while, if you stick with it long enough, you develop calluses on the end of your finger so that you can endure the pain of playing the guitar. I couldn't get to that point, but I also didn't like getting to that point because getting calluses on the end of my fingers is a handicap. I couldn't feel anything with the end of my fingers on that hand. We want to feel the pain of guilt. That's a, that's a blessing to us, that it hurts to feel guilt and shame. And so repentance is the process of having the calluses taken away, the searing of our consciences healed, so that we feel guilt and we turn from sin. It, it's part of the motivation for turning from sin and turning to Christ to walk in his way. In verse 23, Paul says that when we came to Christ, he says, we were made new in the spirit of our minds. That's that change of heart, that change of disposition, that softening of the heart that we're talking about. In Psalm 51, of course, Psalm 51 is the classic song or poem that that, uh, King David wrote in response to the guilt and shame that he felt over this horrific sin of adultery and murder that he had committed. And much of the psalm is is taken up with him begging, asking for mercy and forgiveness from God. But there's one point where he actually goes beyond because just asking for forgiveness, David acknowledges not enough. He asks for something else. Listen to what he says. This is Psalm 51. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Forgive me, Lord, wash me clean, but also create in me a clean heart and renew a right spirit within me. Soften my heart, Lord. Soften my heart. Not only that I might feel the pain of guilt and shame, but that I might desire the things of the Lord Jesus Christ. A soft heart is a heart that's repulsed by sin, that's angered by sin, that turns from sin. And like David, it's something you get by prayer. You know, we talk about witnessing with our neighbor or coworker or family member. We always say you've got to pray before you try to witness because if the Holy Spirit's not preparing their heart to receive the word or the witness that you give them, they're not going to respond. The Holy Spirit's got to work in them first before you can share the gospel with them. Well, the same thing is true of ourselves. If we're going to repent, we need to pray first because the Lord needs to change our hearts first so that we want to repent, let alone have the ability to do so. So prayer is crucial to the softening of the heart process. Well, this leads to the third and last aspect of repentance that Paul talks about here, which is new desires, new passions. When your heart becomes soft, you, become, you, become, you, you, you have the desires within you for the things of the way of Christ become strengthened, they become stronger. And it's these new desires that drive your repentance. So much of our, we hear about repentance, we think of it so much as as the effort that we put into turning away from something, but really repentance is more about the desires for something different, for something new, for desires for the Lord himself and his way. In verse 19, 
By way of contrast, Paul talks about those who live according to the way of the world. He says they've given themselves up to sensuality. Given themselves up. They've turned themselves over to another master to serve sin. And that's what happens when you live for the desires of this world. There are lots of pleasures and comforts and niceties that this world offers to you that we have a natural lusting for. And that's what happens when you have a hard heart is that you give yourselves over to pursuing satisfaction in the things of this world. But Paul says in verse 17, you can find no satisfaction. That's a life of futility. Nothing but emptiness and death at the end of that road. But then Paul talks about what the reprogrammed heart, the softened heart, the renewed mind of a disciple follower of Christ in verse 24. It says, this is what we desire with these new desires given to us by, as a gift of grace by our Lord. The likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. That's what we desire. That's what the new heart desired. We had our heart of stone removed by the grace of God. We were given a new heart, a heart of flesh that desires the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. I like the distinction that Soren Kierkegaard makes in one of his writings about the distinction between an admirer of Christ and a follower of Christ. There are a lot of admirers of Christ. It's hard to find anybody who's going to say a bad word about Jesus Christ. Many who would say they admire him in one way or another. But only those who are born again by the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit know what it means to truly follow Jesus Christ. And Kierkegaard makes this distinction in this way. He says, the admirer never makes any true sacrifices. He always plays it safe. Though in words, phrases, and songs, he is inexhaustible about how highly he praises Christ, he renounces nothing and will not reconstruct his life and will not let his life express what he supposedly admires. Not so for the follower. The follower aspires with all his strength to be what he admires. The follower aspires with all his strength to be what he admires, to be like Christ. That's what a follower is. Not somebody who is just walking in his way, but somebody who longs to be righteous like Christ, longs to draw near to Christ, to be in Christ's presence. It's that new desire of your new heart that must come by the grace of God. In Philippians chapter 3, Paul gives his own testimony for this transformation that took place in his life. He begins the chapter in chapter 3 talking about his old self. His old self was very religious. His old self was a Pharisee of Pharisees. His old self was somebody admired by the religious people in the world. But the old self was lost. The old self had a hardened heart and a darkened mind. And so after describing his old self, he talks about how God changed his heart. And this is how he describes it. He says, now, he says, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, 
but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Those are the words of a follower, not an admirer. Somebody with a new heart, a new mind, and new desires given as an act of grace. Now, you may have noticed that I keep stressing that God has got to give this to us. We've got to, to be praying because only God can change our heart. Only God can reprogram our mind by the power of the Holy Spirit. Only God can give us these new desires that are going to fuel our repentance. Because isn't that the, the worst part of, of a sin, that you, it's a besetting sin, something you keep falling into over and over? How many times do you pray, Lord, I just don't want this anymore? Lord, I, Give me the desire to leave this sin behind. Show me that what you have for me is better than what the world is offering. We ask for God to change our desires. That's the beauty of sanctification. Justification is by faith alone. We are saved by faith alone, totally apart from our works. But sanctification is what the Holy Spirit begins in us from the time we become a follower of Christ until the work of perfecting us is complete. And that work of sanctification by God's grace, is something he does in us, but by his grace, we respond to it. We participate in it. Just like he saves the world by using our witness to the world, he also saves us by our involvement in the sanctification process. As our hearts change, as our desires grow stronger, as our minds are reprogrammed. This is a time of year when people talk about resolutions. And really what they're talking about is a secular form of repentance. These are things about my life that I want to change. And they make a list of things they want to change in the coming year. Nothing, nothing wrong with the desire to change, depending on what those changes are, of course. But for the Christian, realize this is not an annual reassessment for us. This is a daily activity. Daily saying, in what ways am I living according to the old self? In what ways do I need to start living according to the new self? It's a daily process. And it's starts with prayer because only the Holy Spirit can do it in you and through you. But it takes a commitment and a diligence and a, and a, and a, and a, a passion for discipleship. It's, we get to participate in God's great work of beautifying us and transforming us into the image of his son, Jesus Christ. Repentance is taking on this new identity, embracing it, living it out. It is already who we are as God looks at us through the cross of Christ. But it also means receiving the mind, the heart, and the passions of Jesus Christ. C.S. Lewis says this. He says, repentance isn't something God demands of you before he will take you back. He says, repentance is not something that he could let you off of if he chose. He says, instead, repentance is simply a description of what going back to him looks like. And that's our life. Our life is turning to him, coming to him by the power of the word and the spirit, by his grace enabling us. Let's pray and ask for that grace to be given. Father, we long for the kind of transformation that Paul talks about in this passage. But Lord, our longing is not strong enough. And in so many ways, our longing for our, the ways of our old self, the ways of this world, win out over our desires for the things of the kingdom and the 
character of Christ. Lord, we do ask corporately as a body of believers here that you would transform us greatly, not just as we look ahead to a new year, but as we look ahead to an afternoon and an evening and, and a new day tomorrow. Lord, help us to make repentance truly a way of life as we reprogram our minds, as we allow the Spirit to soften our hearts, and as we encourage and inflame the new desires that you've given us in our new hearts. Father, please make us more like Christ, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.